and welcome to Westside Unscripted, the podcast where the pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I'm Josh Bartels, a deacon here at Westside, and I'm joined as usual by Pastor Peter Montoro, our preaching pastor here. And uh, no surprise, he has brought a book with him. So what have you brought uh, today? Well, I want to talk about a movie before I talk about the book. Okay, a movie. Uh, have you seen um, American Underdog yet? I have not, no. I finally watched it. Okay. This is the Kurt Warner story, correct? It is the Kurt Warner story. Yeah, okay. So my wife, and, uh, Ashley, and I finally got a chance to watch it, and I liked it. Good. It's interesting. There were some, you know, some things like it. There was nothing like, you know, on the perspective of things that are in movies, there was nothing that was bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like there's sure. no, you know, there's no uh, uh, bed, bedroom scenes or anything like that. Uh, there were some elements that were yeah, it was was interesting, just in terms of their story, like how they got together, and I, I don't want to spoil the movie for those who haven't haven't seen it. But so, so you want to, you know, just maybe think through that if you're watching with very young children, you'll have some things to explain, even though there's nothing like really objectionable that's shown. But the story as a whole is really, really a compelling story. Yeah. So as I understand it, it's the story of how Kurt Warner goes from. Uh, just liking to play football to end up ending up being a he was a yeah, quarterback well, so a for fifth, the St. Louis a, Rams, correct? Yeah, no. So when he, when he lands, so at the he's end. a fifth year college. So it starts out he's a fifth year college senior who's getting no plate. He wants to be, he wants to be the all star. You know, he wants to be the MVP quarterback of the Super Bowl. But where the movie starts, he's a fifth year senior at a you know third rank school, fourth rank. Not 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 a school with name recognition, right? And he's a fifth-year, you know, he's fifth-year quarterback, and he's getting no time on the field, so he's very far from his ambitions. But he's full of confidence in himself, um, and so it goes from that uh, to he ends up getting, um, you know, he figures out what he has to do to get on the field. So he has like a good end of his last season, uh, but he doesn't get drafted, um, and so then he goes. Um, and he, he gets a call from this, you know, I think it's from the Green Bay. He gets a call from the Packers, and he makes it to their training, and he gives the wrong answer to a question, and he never even gets to try out or play for them. Oh, wow. So now he's gone, and he's met this girl along the way, um, and she has, uh, she's divorced. She has two children. One of them is uh, developmentally disabled because of an accident with the previous father so there's all these things like he's he's in, he's engaged with this new family they're not married yet but he's like caring for them and some that's where some of the ambiguity comes in because it's it's a little like a little a little fuzzier on that point uh then uh but it's not like they're not married it's, it's a little so that part wasn't quite clear to me like what was going on um with them but he's like caring for them he's like engaged with their family but he doesn't have a job um so he ends up getting a job as a you know stalker at a grocery store working graveyard shift so he wants to be in the NFL, and here he is as a stalker on the, you know, the shelves, and somebody you know, once comes and offers him a, you know, playing arena football, which he thinks of. He wants to play NFL. He thinks that's like you know, a circus, low grade, nothing. Um, and so he won't do it, but he's like driving you know, with this family that they've sort of put together, and they, like, they have no money. They're, she's in nursing school. He's working you know, as a stalker. So they're like, they run out of gas in the middle of a blizzard. And he's like, enough of this. I've got to, you know, I've got to do what I've got to do. So he goes and tries to play the arena football, but turns out he's not very good at that. Um, like, he doesn't get the hang of it. And so he's really struggling with that. And something clicks finally. He, like, is motivated, and, and he starts doing amazing at that. And so along the way, he gets the girl, gets married. Um, and then 
he has this amazing, you know, goes from being like, why did I ever even hire him? Like he was supposed to be super attractive for this arena football thing. And then he did lousy at that. But finally he starts, you know, performing on the field. And, and then he ends up with the St. Louis Rams. So it's not drafted, but he's, they, you know, contact him. And like the offensive coordinator hates him. He's like, you know, too old to, you know, he like tells him you're too old to be a rookie. You know, you're too, too green to be a veteran. What in the world are you doing here? And so he's there on the field and he's there on the team, but you know, they have their star quarterback and he's just like, you know, sort of there. And then an injury happens to the star quarterback. And um, then he ends up becoming the starting quarterback for the next season, like contrary to all expectations. That's awesome. And then he like sets all these records <laughs> um, and ends up taking the team to the Super Bowl and becoming the MVP of the Super Bowl, like he'd set out by the most. Yeah. And there's actually, there's even in his actual story, there's like another twist. Like he had another shot that didn't work out in between all of that. And so it's this really odd trajectory along the way. Like he learns like life isn't all about football. So it's like as long as life is all about football, he can't do the football thing. But when he has a motivation that's bigger than him being the star. Um, and, you know, he, he is actually a Christian as far as I know, um, like a sincere, not just like Christian identity. So like when he like wins the MVP or whatever, it did actually at the end of it, there's like video, you know, TV footage of him actually playing because it's pretty recent. Um, and he like, you know, talked about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ yeah. and stuff. So the, the Christian element of the film was more muted in the background, but even it was obvious that it was a big part of his story and him. Yeah. I, I think at some point coming to faith along along the way, just realizing that like him and his ambitions weren't big enough. And it's like, uh, I like what Nate Wilson said about it. The story is like so implausible that no one would produce it if it hadn't actually happened um it was a good it was a good movie it was well acted it was yeah cool it was a good giveaway yeah i want to watch it i gave away some of the plot twists but this actually yeah, happened yeah. and some of you may remember it so yeah right everyone knows that kurt warner i say everyone anyone who knows football knows that kurt warner ends up at the top so you know he's going to end and, up there and according somewhere. to i'm not a football person but supposedly he ends up as is one of, considered to be one of the best undrafted players or the best undrafted player ever to play in the NFL. yeah and i'm not a football player person either but uh i remember as a kid playing madden 2000 on uh, the computer and he was one of my favorite quarterbacks to play with because he was good. So <laughs> I don't know. Don't well, know where. That. Yeah. Don't know, don't know where in the 2000 range that uh, he was. Yeah, playing Yeah, that was that when time. that would have been like when early 2000s that he was playing. He ended up going to play for 12 seasons. And, okay. Cool. And that's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's so a pretty. It's, it's a pretty. Yeah, it's yeah, a pretty good. Awesome. It's a good. It's a good movie. Good. So you also brought a book. Then. I also what, brought a book. Uh, so I'm going to go from you know more popular entertainment to something that's a bit more, uh, well. Not popular. <laughs> so it's a little book, though. It's okay. short. Yeah, I see that. It's pretty small it, compared to some of the books we've uh, yeah, seen on the this. podcast. Yeah, um, It's called Begotten or Made. It's by Oliver, o Oliver O'Donovan, who's a, a moral philosopher in the UK. I believe he's still alive, as far as I know. Um, written a lot of books. But this one was written in 1984. And it was right when IVF was really coming to the forefront. Um, this is InterVarsity. No, no. What is IVF? Uh, Forget in, vitro in vitro fertilization? In vitro okay, fertilization. Okay. Yeah, I was getting the first preposition there. In, yeah, when that was first coming to the forefront mm -hmm. as a technology that was widely available and was developing. Um, and so it was, there was a big debate about it when it first came out. And this was like his contribution to that debate. Okay. And it's interesting. He's also writing about transsexualism when it was a new thing um, and about some of the concerns that that was raising. It's, it's astonishing. Things that were declared to be unthinkable at the time and everyone was like, no, this will never happen. Right. That he's like saying, this is where this is going to take us. It's exactly where it has taken us. So yeah. it's an, you know, for a book written almost 40, you know, well, 
I guess the lectures would have been almost almost exactly 40 years ago. Wow. It's astonishingly prescient. Um, and just really raising what are the deeper issues. And really, the, the heart of the book is he talks about the distinction between begetting a child and making a child. Um, and about the challenges that come to our understanding of humanity when we said about making children and how really uh, IVF crosses that, that boundary in ways that are difficult to stop with that. And in, in fact, we've seen that he was exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, and in the same way uh, that trans transgenderism, which we call it today, was called transsexualism at the time, um, raises some of those same issues and how this broader idea of what it means to be human, the nature of the body. I'm reading it. For, I, I read it for my series, but it's a really profound little book. I saw it That's quoted. Cool. That's good. It, it seems like a pretty narrow topic, but he takes like a broad view of it. And so it's really profound. Hmm. Um, it, there's one, there's lots of good takeaways, but there was one, one section I wanted to share where he's talking about the, the revolution that's taken place in our society in modernity more generally and how that's affected even the goals of medicine and, and that sort of thing. And he says this, we live not at the seed time, but at the harvest of the modern age. When we have the privilege of seeing what is its true character more clearly than those who have gone before us. And we have to think of the next seed time, if one is given to us, and ask what we shall sow. In conclusion, I wish to speak confessionally of how Christians should speak and think at this stock-taking point in our culture. And so then he goes on to give uh, four different points. I won't read them all in full. Christians should at this juncture confess their faith in the natural order as the good creation of God. To do this is to acknowledge that there are limits to the employment of technique and limits to the appropriateness of our making. These limits will not be taught us by compassion, but only by the understanding of what God has made and by his discovery that it is complete, whole, and satisfying. We must learn again the original meaning of that great symbolic observance of Old Testament faith, the Sabbath, on which we lay aside our making and acting and doing in order to celebrate the completeness and integrity of God's making and acting and doing, in the light of which we can dare to undertake another week of work. Technique, too, must have its Sabbath rest. That's his first point. Mm. And he's, he's making, making, you know, making the point that um, we have a tendency to take, when he talks about limits given by compassion, that if someone says they're suffering and we can do something to change it, then we should without considering the good for them. So allowing people to determine their own good. So especially in the context of like transgenderism, where someone declares, I don't feel comfortable in my body. So therefore, compassion dictates that we change their body in accordance with their wishes without considering whether that's a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. If you have no external good, then compassion becomes the only rule and that becomes very malleable to suit whoever purposes, you know, whoever has power at the moment um, without any direction from the nature of our bodies or the nature of, you know, the goods of the creational, creational order, that there, right. that there would be some things that we can do that we shouldn't do. Which it seems that the, in the experience I've had and the stories I've heard, that it's not a scientific uh, understanding of the body that brings someone to believing that they are transgender or that they are gay or something along the, something like that. Uh, or in parents and family approving of that kind of situation, it's always lead, they lead with compassion, right? Like, yep. don't, like, wouldn't, do you hate us to not allow us to do this? Uh, wouldn't, shouldn't everyone be able to love? It's the, they lead with the compassion and then the biology and the science is just there to prop up that exactly. declaration. Ex exactly. And, and the thing about, about turning compassion into the ultimate good 
is it doesn't allow you to determine what might actually be good. And so while compassion yeah, right. is a good, it's a subordinate good. And that's really the point that he's making, that we have to give priority to the givenness of creation. Because that defines what real compassion right. is. Right. Well, it defines... The limits of Yeah, the, 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 yeah. there are limits to... There, there should be limits set to our compassion as well as limits set to our technology, that there are, there are limits given to us by our embodiment as creatures. Um, and that really, the whole technological revolution is a war against limits. Right. Um, and so having, you know, destroyed all the other limits, it has now come to the limits of our nature as human beings and is attempting to destroy those. Um, and just as we've seen the negative consequences of the previous revolution against limits that we're, we're reaping now, um, then we need to really stop and take think about what kind of seeds we're sowing um, because, you know, that's, so that's something to think about, that really we can't, we can't stop the harvest from coming up that's already been sown. Mm-hmm. But we can think about what we can do to prepare a better soil and sow a better harvest that maybe we won't get to experience. But we're reaping seeds that were sown 50, 80, 100, 200, 300 years ago, and we need to have uh, a plan so that 200 years from now, if the Lord hasn't returned, <laughs> there's some better harvest for our great-great-grandchildren mm. to be reaping. Um, yeah. And that should be our primary objective. And so I thought that was really helpful. Yeah, was that's really good. So what do we got in so terms today's, of the question? Today's question is very practical and uh, very kind of straightforward about the Lord's Supper again. So we've talked about the Lord's Supper, Supper a couple of different times in terms of theology and ecclesiology, but today we're going to talk about just the mechanics of it. So when if someone was at Westside service mm-hmm. and were observing the Lord's Supper, they see the deacons and the pastors, the, uh, the other pastors come forward and stand in front of the congregation. The bread is distributed... Uh, first, and then the wine, and the deacons pass it out. They bring the pl- they each have a platter of the element. They bring it back. They put it on the t- give it to the pastors who put it on the table, who then serve them. So when you see the supper observed, and in any church there's some kind of mechanic right. that you see played out. Do, do those mechanics have significance and meaning in and of themselves? Are they just practical considerations? Uh, Kind of what, how should we think about the importance of the actual carrying out of the elements? I guess first, maybe, what are some way, other ways that people observe that you've mm. heard of? I mean, like I think of, I've seen the situation, which we did of necessity during COVID, where we distribute the bread and the cup at the same time, but other churches do that as just a matter of practice. Uh, you know, things like other churches, people would come and take, uh, come to the front to receive the elements. Mm-hmm. You know, there's different ways that people do it. Is, is what 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 uh, is there really tight significance there, or what 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 do you I think? think? There could be. Yeah. I don't know exactly. Like, so I mean, this is just practically. Like, I mean, so so to be really uh, practical for a second. Um, well, hopefully, you know, not just a second, but <laughs> to be really practical, like that's the way we were doing it when I got here. <laughs> I haven't made any. So, like, I I really feel like it's not that change. We talked about change on Sunday. It's not like change is never necessary, but you know, we should only make change for a reason, not just to change for the sake of changing. So sometimes change is necessary. Um, but if there's not a reason to change, <laughs> then things should be left unchanged. And also there needs to be like a hierarchy of change. Like there's things that are of greater importance and lesser importance. So y- you can only change so many things at, at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the reason we're doing it the way we're doing it is because that's the way we were doing it when I got here. Yeah. And I don't think there's a good re- necessarily a good reason to change it. And also there's also, I think change should be really well considered. So there's like a limit of how much change that people can receive, and there's a limit of how much 
mental capacity, reading capacity, time capacity on the part of those who would institute change to actually think through it. So there's like sort of two hard limits that like on the one hand, you don't want to make too many changes because people, you know, change always comes at a cost. Um, and then you want to make sure it's well considered. Uh, and so you can only consider so many, you know, leadership can only consider so many things. Mm -hmm. And so those should be really like changes should not be made faster than, than people can process or faster than leadership can process and really be thinking through just because we can do something different doesn't mean we should. Mm -hmm. Like what's going to be, you know, so we were, you know, we were talking about this, you were at the DECA's meeting, we we're talking about this, um, you know, just even the way we distribute it, where it's like, we, we say, um, so this is a practical sort of thing. So we say like, uh, if you're baptized and a member of a church in good standing, you should take the Lord's Supper. But we basically leave that determination <laughs> up to you know, the, the people who are yeah. the individual to determine for themselves. So you make it very clear, here's who's eligible. You know, we'd ask you not to partake if you're not eligible in that right. way. Um, so what do we do if we know someone is, not, you know, they're not on church discipline, that's a clear case. Like we know this person's a member of our church, they're on discipline, or we know they're a member from another church and they're on, they're excommunicated. So we know for a fact that someone's mm -hmm. excommunicated. But if we have suspicions that someone isn't eligible, what do we do? And so, you know, our practice has been to, to leave that determination to the individual. But if you're going to change that, you can't change it in an arbitrary way. You need to change it consistently. Right. And there just isn't any practical way, <laughs> given the way that we're doing it, without going from the ground up and totally changing everything mm -hmm. uh, to really make that determination consistently. If you can't make a consistent change, it's better to leave things the way they are because you can always improve them later on. Yeah. Um, and so that's just really, I know this, this is sort of coming at a different angle to the question, but just thinking through... I think practically, like, we're doing it the way we're doing it because that's the you know, I don't, I'm right, not aware right. of any major problems with it. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, so different churches do it differently. So there's also, like, yeah. you have to fill in the mechanics somehow. Exactly. And so I think there are things maybe we could do that would have. So I'm not aware of, like, any deep significance to the mm -hmm. way we're doing it. Sure. Other than it's appropriate to have the deacon serve the communion. Like, there's, a, there's an appropriateness right. to having the pastor, uh, pastors pray over the— do, do the prayer and the deacons do the distribution, that there's long, you know, deacons serving at communion, there's a long rooting in, and we even have that in our bylaws. So there's an appropriate to that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that uh, there's, a, there's a certain amount of meaning that you can read into it rightly in terms of just what does it mean. Not necessarily that that just looking at our practice, mm -hmm. you can read something from it in the same way that you can look at someone's actions and say, here's what this kind of reflects about them. So we can look at it and extract some meaning out of it. So like you said about there's a significance. Yeah, and I, think, I think there's a significance to the deacon serving. Right? Yeah, or to say like, so other things that I think would be significant would be um, having everyone partake at one time. Let's wait and partake together. So I think there's a theological significance to that. And of course, like, you know, the ultimate in that significance would be having everyone drink out of the same cup, you know, you have that togetherness, right. but in given the size of the congregation and, you know, health concerns that people might have, that, you know, ideal becomes a little impractical to right. pass one cup around the whole congregation. Yeah. Probably not going to work in today's day and age, and it won't work with a congregation our size either. Um, so having everyone partake at one time is trying to capture that, that significance of the unity, you know, the unifying communion of, of the supper. Mm -hmm. And... You know, having the bread and the cup separately, I think, reflects the biblical text, you know, that you have, he gives the bread, and then he gives the cup. Right. And, um, you know, so there's a, there's a significance to doing those two elements separately. Um, 
it wouldn't have to be distributed separately. But right. even when we distri- yeah. even when we distributed the two together, um, then we, we blessed each one separately, took right. them separately. And I think that's the re- and that's just following the pattern of the biblical text. So I right. think that's right, um, and that's one of the reasons why. I would probably be opposed to, you know, there, there's some churches that'll take the bread and, and share in the cup, you know, by dipping the bread in, in the cup, mm. um, which that gets you more of the sharing from one cup, but it takes the two separate elements and puts them together in a way that doesn't have warrant in the biblical text. Right. And so it's kind of like you always, I guess the idea is you're always making trade-offs. Yeah. You're, you're making trade-offs between you're trying to capture, you know, the symbolism that was originally, you know, a very small group of men all sitting at one table, and yet it's been given to Christ's church. And so how to translate that, you know, 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later into a congregational setting with, you know, a much broader group of people, with people who, you know, are eligible to partake and who aren't, who are all present there. You know, so you've got a broader range of people. You've got a, you know, so so trying to do that, there's going to be trade-offs in how you do it. You know, there's also going to be the, you know, the more elaborate you make it, then the harder it becomes to do. Right. And then you have a tendency to do it less. So there's some things you could do if you did it once a year. Um, and yet, you know, I think the evidence from the early church is that it, it's done, and, and even the scriptures it, it themselves, is that it was done weekly. And so then you've got to think, okay, well, we're doing it at least monthly. That's good. If we make it more elaborate so we can't do it monthly anymore, then we're pulling away from that symbolism of, you know, so it's kind of like every, everything you do, I guess what I'm getting at is everything you do is going to, well, I mean, there's, there could be some changes that would just be harmful, like, you know, using tortilla chips and Coke would just be yeah, bad. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we could clearly cut that off. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in terms of things where Scripture doesn't give us a detailed church order, a lot of it is trade-offs. And a big factor in that is appropriately going to be just how, is, how has it been done? Because if you make right. too many changes, then, um, you know, when, when there's not a problem, then you end up, you know, giving, giving the attention on the change, which is good if it's a really, really good change where it's really clear that this where you is a, want attention to go there anyway. right where you want right. attention to go yeah. so like one thing i have no idea how this would work in practice so this is this is something like this is one of those areas that like i want to wrestle with and think to but i haven't maybe had the time to do yet but i'm i'm thinking about maybe doing a mini series on the lord's supper sometime in the next couple of years maybe maybe this january maybe you know like a year from now. you know at some point sure um, but it's something i think is something i want to dig into deeper yeah you know, but like one, you know, the idea of using one loaf, if you could somehow get a loaf that could be broken, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was big enough for the whole congregation to partake of, and mm-hmm. you could break that as part of the, you know, that's one of the things that uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, you know, you're all part of one loaf, and he draws on the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, so we know they're right. breaking a single loaf, and they're partaking in that. Right. Um, and so we haven't done that, um, but if there was a way to do that without, that didn't mess anything, you know, that didn't mess you know they didn't create problems right. elsewhere yeah right um so that I mean, would really, definitely be more feasible than all sharing one cup <laughs> right so in terms of the mechanics of it a lot of it is just practical considerations that are trying to think through how do we practically fulfill what are clear mandates in scripture exactly and so in very similar ways to every other area of life taking the mandate of scripture and trying to bring it into our age that's what's happening in terms of the uh right fulfillment or the action of it the particular meanings that we might have and, ascri- and try to infuse into the ritual of the, of the practice uh, are going to be balanced by we don't want to just run into whatever we think might look like a good meaning or might symbolize something. We really cool. want to think. We really want to think through. So, you know, so like yeah. what a, one, one, one aspect of that is that I think is, is significant is Christ gives the supper to the disciples. So, 
so I think that would argue against any practice where people take it for themselves. So, you know, so there's some churches that have like communion stations set, you know, so yeah, there's right. the more important things I think that we're, you know, that we're getting, you know, I think that, the, the, you know, the, the basics, you know, is that there's bread and there's wine or grape juice of some, there's a fruit of the vine, which is actually the language that's there in the, in the text is the fruit of the vine. So you have the fruit of the vine and you have bread um, and you're, you're, you're taking those two things um, and you're doing it as a church, it's given to the church. So I think that's really important. Um, and it's something that is served because Christ is the one who serves us the supper. So you need someone who's appropriate representative of Jesus to serve it to you. It's not something you take take to yourself. So just sort of like lining it up on a table and having everyone grab it would would undercut the symbolism, mm-hmm. you know, immensely. That there's a prayer, a separate prayer for each of them. Um, that the words of Scripture are read and, and the meaning of it is explained. So it's not a bare a bare symbol, but a symbol together with the word, as Luther, you know, emphasized so much. So those are some of the things that I think are really like the key yeah. parameters that we're doing right and we shouldn't change. And then you just get to the deed, you know, the actual yeah. mechanics of how to do it. And within those parameters, like it's simply like what is practicable and how much, you know, and, and some of that is just like how creative, you know, th- there are probably creative things that could be done that would fit within those parameters that would right. help draw our attention to the, to the biblical symbolism. It just, would require just, I think, sometimes if you're not really careful, you can end up having unintended, as we talked about with technology, you can end up, right. you know, uh, Pastor Hardy that I, I interned with had this thing about technology, but it, it would apply to change more generally. Uh, to, to, he would talk about, you know, Paul's principle of lay hands on no man suddenly that he tells, I think it's Timothy, right. and apply that to technology, and I would apply it to any kind of change in the church that simply because something initially looks attractive doesn't mean we should do it. We should really take the time uh, to think through, read different perspectives, talk to different people, and really think about, is this actually going to be, is this actually going to be a benefit? What? Because every benefit, every, everything that you might change is going to come, it's going to have some, some good, but it's also going to have some cost. There's something that's going to be lost, even if it's just the distraction of attention by something being different. Uh, And so you want to really look to see what the profit's going to be. Yeah, I think it was uh, G.K. Chesterton who said something along the lines of no man has a right to remove a fence until he can explain to you why the fence was built in the first place. That you can see a fence and say, oh, that needs to go, and then not realize, oh, wait a second, there's something something that needs kept out or kept in. (laughs) You know, and and until you know kind of what the thing was there for, knowing how to change it. You know, and I would say even like if, if, you know, even deciding the fence should be even minor changes. You know, you really can't decide, should the fence be higher? You know, with that, this is what I talked about on Sunday. Right. You know, if you don't know what the fence is there for, you can't really make changes to it. Um, but also, if you don't know what the fence is there for, you don't really have the right to complain about changes to the fence either. Um, because just simply, you know, if the, the goal of the fence is to keep a bull out, um, that's a dangerous bull, for instance, you know, keep right. him in, um, and he's grown taller then adding a rail to the fence is actually necessary for the fence to continue to have, you know, the purpose it originally intended. Right, right, there could yeah. be times where the purpose necessitates mm-hmm. something that feels to you like a change, or it may be that, you know, part of the yeah. fence has fallen down and you've always seen it falling down, but actually it was supposed to be a right. certain way. Yeah. And so really understanding what something is for and taking the time to do that um, is necessary, not only for arguing for change, but also for <laughs> successfully arguing yeah. against it. Yeah. And I think that the, we should, we should listen to the, that instinct or that uh, initial warning sign that is thrown up when something changes and we think, oh, no, is this okay? Is this bad? We should listen to that and not just silence it. Exactly. It means we have to look in to say, 
I can't evaluate the change and say it's bad because it's change. I have to look and see what is the change aiming to accomplish and how does it line up right. or diverge from the original and we can't And we can't make our, institution. our preferences the ultimate determiner. Like yeah. it's valid to take them into account, absolutely. Yeah. But we can't make what we like. Like we can't make in, in a matter as precious as Christchurch, we can't make our taste the final arbiter. Right. Until we've determined that, you know, it simply is a matter of taste. You know, some, some things really are just a matter of, you know, what yeah. color is the wall going to, you know, but we have to think like, I mean, that could be a matter of taste or it could actually have some symbolism to it. So we actually have to do the work of, yeah. is, there, is there something more at stake than simply my preferences? And if so, then we've got to give those a secondary secondary yep. status. And our preferences come in to play oh, in decisions that we make on our own or even in relation to what we're going to be involved in right. at the church. But they are not what determine what is faithful or what is not. Exactly. Yep. Right. So, well, this has been a conversation about the technique of the Lord's Supper and has spun into talking about uh, change. And so it was kind of turned out to be pretty appropriate with the sermon you preached on Sunday. So brought it in for a landing there. This has been Westside Unscripted. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you have a question that you want answered or discussed here on this podcast, I sh- maybe I, we shouldn't say answered, but we should say we will definitely discuss your question on the we podcast. You don't always have answers. <laughs> so send it to Josh at Bible Direction for Life, and we will uh, talk about it here on the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will be with you next week for more talk about theology and culture. Thank you.